Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip and commentary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Death isn't my concern and prison isn't my concern. Right. I have no concern in that respect whatsoever. Uh-huh. I made my peace with God on the 17th of January 1981. The Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ. Uh-huh. I don't care what people forgive me or don't forgive me. The most important thing I've been forgiven by God through the finished work of Calvary. That's it. Jail is nothing. Dennis Mullen, I don't like saying this, but I'm not responsible for his death. There's other people responsible for his death, and it broke my heart to realise that I'd killed an innocent man. That's the voice of Garfield Beatty. He's a triple murderer who was part of the brutal Glenan gang, made up of Ulster Unionists, or you see police officers and British soldiers, who went on a killing spree at the beginning of the Troubles, targeting Catholics in Armagh and Tyrone. It's now thought that the group killed between 75 and 120 people, most of whom were ordinary civilians with no links to Republican paramilitaries. One of those murdered was Dennis Mullen, an ambulance controller and the father of two. He was struck by 17 bullets when he stepped outside his home at College Lands near the Moy in September of 1975. Beatty served 17 years for the murder of Mullen, but five decades on, he's back behind bars for intimidating Mullen's daughter, Denise, who was just three years old when she witnessed an unimaginable horror. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. I'm Denise Mullen and I um, live in Moy, born, bred and reared there. I have two children and um, my mother, um, Olive, who um, was shot at 13 times, um, she resides with me. Um, my father, Dennis, was um, the first one killed with what we now know as the Glenan gun. Um, it went on then to kill, I think, around 120 more people. Um, this, the events of 1st of September 1975 
around 10 o'clock at night have changed my life forever. The first three and a half years of my life were extremely grounded and, um, you know, a great family atmosphere and um, my both my parents worked and so we were comfortable. And for that time, you know, to have two cars and whatever for it was a, not a not, not lot a lot of nationalists would have had. Um so I guess what the term is known as upwardly were mobile nationalists. Um but from the first of September that all was taken away from us. What age were you, Denise? Um I really was three, but I was four then in the November, so um we can run with almost four. Mm. And sometimes, you know, people try and when you try to remember back, it's probably just really major events that you can remember before the age of about seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously that night was just an incredibly major event that has shaped your life forevermore. It has, yeah. Do you remember before it happened? Do you remember? I do, yeah, because we actually were, we have been away um, the week before we were away in um, Waxworth for a few days um, when we met up with um, my father's, one of his friends, Sean, um, who lives down there. Um, I can remember being in their house. I can remember my father and Sean going off for a walk. I can remember us going for a meal on the way home and uh, in a lovely hotel, I can visualise where I was sitting, my mother was sitting, my father was sitting, my brother was sitting in a high chair. Um, I can remember the atmosphere there was 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 great. Um, um, I can remember because we were going away and I had a goldfish, my, um, my Aunt Mary, she took the goldfish. And actually that was one of the things on the night my father was murdered. Um, it was an old house, so the windowsills um, at, at the front of the house were, were those deep windowsills that you could almost sit in. And in the hall window, that's where my goldfish would have been. And whenever I came out of the door initially, um, before I saw my father, or um, I could see to the right that the wall had um, like clay ball, clay mud running down it. And um, all I can remember looking over and saying into myself, obviously like I was a child, so thank God my goldfish wasn't there. He'd be dead now. Then thereafter, I mean, I actually can remember a month before my father died, which I now know was the 3rd of August. And um, there was a guy, George McCall was killed in Moy. And um, I know he would have been UDR, to say was UVF as well, but I know I, I, I don't know about that. Um, but that night that he was killed, there was a lot of activity outside our house with cars coming driving onto the street and shouting stuff, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, I know my parents were quite concerned. Um, I can remember then a few days after that, this large gate, which I know is still there actually on the lane, uh, like a kettle gate, um, arrived. And because I was so used to going everywhere with my father, like I, I mean, toured the country with him. 
and I wanted to go out. It was I know it was a dark night, and I wanted to go out to see what the men were doing, I um what all this commotion up the lane was, and Daddy said to me, um, I can't even look at the poor animal now if I see them anywhere. Daddy says, no, you can't go out. There's a wee dead hedgehog up the lane and I'm going to get it. Oh. So, but it wasn't. They were putting on this gate and trying to secure around the place. So do you remember feeling fear or just being aware that your parents were anxious about something? I knew my parents were anxious. I could, I can, I can, I can remember that about the gate and the hedgehog incident. Looking back, even... That memory of seeing my father just walking away with Sean and them going for a long walk and I've now since discovered what they talked about and, you know, it's awful. You know, my father, Sean, in fact, I have a letter that my father wrote to Sean the year my brother was born. I was 1974 and... um. He has said, you know, told, you know, obviously people were writing to each other then. And the letters, my father saying that, um, to asking him to look out for a place down south because he felt that he might have to move the family there. And I know then whenever Sean and Daddy went for that walk, um, Daddy pressed Sean, I really need to, we're going to move south. Mm. Things are too tense in the north. The very vivid memories you have for such a small child, you must have been, you know, very connected to that feeling in the home that there was something bad. I mean, yeah, it was well, it was scary that. times, 1975. Yeah, well, actually, you know, now I'm in a counselling process and I only started that um, three years ago um, after being stopped by the man that killed my father. Mm. But I talk to, you know, obviously the counsellor about all that and why I haven't ended up being, you know, an alcoholic or a, a drug abuser or whatever it is. And I, you know, have said that I can't understand, you know, people saying they've had such a traumatic childhood and then they're using that excuse for doing um, terrible things in their lives or whatever. And um, he has said to me, the, what I have told him, you know, of going everywhere with my father, all election stuff and meetings in the house. And, um, you know, he was going around encouraging nationalists to vote. So, like, I couldn't have said to my mother over the years, I such and such lives in that house there. And she's going, how do you know that? I remember being in there with Daddy. And um, anyhow, the guy that I have counselling with said that the early years of your childhood shape your, you know, how, by and large, a lot how you've coped in the later years. But because of those three and a half years were so grounded and um, I, it has enabled me to be strong and, and, and face life. There was a lot of love and security yeah. within your family. Yeah. There was the opposite of that in the outside world, I That's suppose, right. yeah. happening at that time. But... As a child, you felt a great connection and love and yeah, safety. Definitely. Yeah, like my parents were, um, you know, both strong characters. Um, if if truth be told, it's my mother was a, more, she was a civil rights activist and it was only by whenever her and daddy got together, they went to England for four years after they got married and then that was to make a bit of money and then come home and start a family. But my mother was really the feisty one. Her, 
you know, she had grew up in a house where her father was used to doing the election register and whatever. And my mother, um, while Daddy was the the face of the thing, because my my mother and she probably still isn't, wasn't really a great people's person. So she was in the background saying to Daddy, you know, should go to the, that person and go to that one. And she was the one who was doing the forms and getting people houses and getting people jobs. He was the face of the thing. But really, my mother was the, the backbone that was doing the work. Mm-hmm. And I suppose around that time, um, in an area not too far from you, was a, the Glenan gang mm-hmm. and the farm where they met and where they organised themselves. There had been the Dublin Monaghan bombings at that stage and they were active and they were, mm-hmm. as I've spoken to Hugh Jordan before, they were essentially trying to ethnically cleanse the area of Catholics. That's right, yeah. But I don't know, can you talk about that night and what sure. occurred? Um, so I obviously didn't know the time until, and yet it was late and yet it was dark, you know, the exact time until we had the HET report, but... And now I know it was around 10 o'clock. Um, we would have been in bed as normal earlier that evening because it was an old house and was getting done up. A couple of gay, two fellas were there painting and decorating. Daddy run them home and my brother and I were in bed. Um, we all shared a room, as I said, the house was getting done up. My brother was in a cot by the window. There was a double bed and then the single bed. But... Um, I just heard a lot of noise, uh, a lot, a lot of noise, and I opened the door. I am, um, and just what met me was these, and to the right on the wall, it was just this mud running down the wall. Um, I know that, and I know that they used the clay balls out in the the front field to fire them at the house to to draw attention for Daddy to go out. And, um, as I say, the goldfish was in the window. Thank God it wasn't there. Um, I don't know how my feet didn't weren't cut, or or even if they were cut, I'm, 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 I don't have any recollection of that. But I just know I saw my father lying there, and rather than going to him immediately, I actually turned and went back into the bedroom. And I can remember standing on the side of the cot and looking in to check that my brother was okay and that there was no glass or anything around him. He was out for the count. And I got down off the cot sides again and I went up the hall and all I had on was underclothing and a wee light nighty, short sleeves. And I went back up the hall and... Um, I sat there with my father and um, I can remember like the police coming, then the priest and then the ambulance. And I have a really, all I can visualise then after that is colours. Um, you know, like there's yellow, uh, yellows a lot uh, um, and orangeness. Um, I don't know whether it was lights or what it was, but um, I have very bright colours and I can see the ambulance man um, standing there. Um, I remember Seamus Mullen coming, my mother's brother coming. 
there was a police cordon to the right outside the house and um, um, Maura and Tom Macaray, they lived up the road and they were shouting at the police, let us get the children out, let us get the children out. But the police, I know, were in the house and they were searching the whole house. Meanwhile, I was just left sitting there. They were searching the whole house and I left and went back into the bedroom and I got into bed, but I had the bed clothes up to me, up to my nose, and I was watching what they were doing, pretending to be sleeping. Um, when they left the room, I got back out of bed, and now they never looked at my brother or I whenever they came into the room to see if we were living or dead. Um, they just started doing all, all the pulling out all the drawers, and um, got back out of bed, went up to the hall again sat there. I should have said whenever I was walking up the hall after when I saw all those clay balls, there was the door to the right then next and the living room was there and then off it was the kitchen and by that stage I saw all I could see was my mother's two feet going out the window and um, that, that was all I saw of her and um, basically then the cops did. I remember then, um, Seamus Mullen, the, the police or army, whoever they were, went to lift my father's body. And um, he said, No, you'll not lift the greatest man in Ireland. Um, I'll be lifting him. And him and my mother's brother, Pat, lifted what was left of my father into the ambulance. And then Maura and Tom, um, I can remember Tom carried me and Maura carried my brother um, out of the house. And I was, um, the way Tom carried me, like my head was up to his. So I can remember just looking around at a scene of people colours, vehicles, and it just was a terrible feeling. Since that, um, yeah, I'm traumatised by the colours, but for me, I could be anywhere, any place at any time. I can't bring it on. I can't, I can't make it happen. It just happens. Um, and there's this terrible smell comes over me. And... Whenever that happens, it just totally empowers my life. I, if I was driving, I'd have to pull over the side of the road. Um, it feels it lasts for ages, but I know it only lasts for a few seconds, maybe a few minutes. But when that happens, that just takes me back to that scene. Um, it's it's a terrible, terrible smell. Um, you know, different people have asked me over the years, you know, was it the smell of gunpowder? Was it the smell? Of, I don't know what gunpowder smells like. I, you know, I don't know what the smell is, but it's just the smell of me sitting there with Daddy, and um, that's one of the hardest things to deal with. Actually, is 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 that smell? Did your childhood end that day? It did, yeah, because. My mother ran across the fields and she got out the back window and started running across the fields for help and there was 13 bullets fired at her. Um, that 
my mother wasn't able to go back to work for maybe 10 or 12 years. She was maxed out on Valium um, and whatever other prescription drugs that they, they could give her. I became my mother's carer, my brother's carer. Um, I was stunned in a chair washing the dishes. All we lived on was toast. And then I progressed to being able to do a cup of soup. And um, actually, my brother and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And he said, and it just hit me so raw, he said, I think you were about nine when you, you decided you would try cooking potatoes. You know, and tomato soup tin, I could do tomato soups, tins, cheese and toast. Um, I was lifting my mother's pension at the post office. These are not normal things that a four-year-old should be doing. I remember then going to school in Moy and um, playing in the yard. And you know how children, I don't know if they still do these things, what does your daddy work at? And me saying my daddy was dead and... All the way four-year-olds was like, Dad? Well, what happened to him when I said he was shot? And by this stage then, there just wasn't two or three wee other ones. was a group around me. And I was actually given a lesson on what the UVF was and what the IRA was. Because I knew what they were. And I was explaining to these other school ones how my father was shot by the UVF. And... Um, and they were asking, well, what is the UVF? And I was explaining to them and then what the IRA was. And my God, a four-year-old doing that. Did you have to go back to the house? I never went back to the house until about five years ago. We never went back to that house. And we ended up moving in with my grandmother, um, who's almost blind. My mother's brother, who had mental health problems, was a two-bedroom council house. Um, I can remember detectives coming. It always left my mother very annoyed and anxious after that. My mother went from about 14 stone to 6 stone in a matter of months. She spent most of her time in bed. My granny tried to look after us. Um, then we got a council house a few doors up. But within a couple of years, our lifelines were really all gone because my grandmother then died. Um, that was another major blow for my mother because she had been relying on, on her own mother. And um, believe me, life was horrendous. And obviously your mother was, must have been very badly physically affected. She was, but right, also but mentally. mentally was worse. Yeah. Um, she just lost all, all hope in life and, you know, Volume is a lot to answer for, you know. I just, other people that I've talked to that their mothers or others were in Volume, it's a terrible drug. Because if she woke up at night, you know, out of, or taking her sleeping tablets, if she ended up waking up at night, um, it was really hell for my brother and I. And the other thing, of course, Denise, was no counselling in those days. No like, counselling. never thought of it. And, you know, no more... My mother had a couple of, you know, one friend in particular, Ms. Macklin, and we would have stayed a lot out there and probably lived, we lived out there for with her for a while. But it wasn't until I was about 10 that I actually told anyone what I had seen um, because there just was nobody to tell. My mother... Your mother you didn't know, ask? No, nobody asked. And I was suffering inside. I went through right into my teens as well this gasping 
like that, just gasping all the time. And I felt as if I just couldn't breathe. And, you know, I'd said to my mother a couple of times, I, I need to go to the doctor. Mommy, I, I really can't breathe at times. But mummy wasn't functioning. Mm. But it wasn't until I had my first child, Colin was now 21 next month. And that's whenever things really hit me badly. Mm. Um, so within a couple of months, I actually went to a doctor, Elaine O'Kane, and I had a treatment called, I went there for months, craniosacriology. And what happened was when I had column, I started to take, it was more than panic attacks. It was really inside me, like shaking inside. Um, because I had shown my brother how to tie his laces, I'd taken the stabilizers off the bike, all those sort of things. But particularly this tying of the shoelaces, I was going over and over and over in my head. How did I show him how to tie his laces? How did I do that? So I started to panic. How was I going to show my own son how to do this? Um, so anyhow, I got this treatment. It's like a form of counselling, but mm, very deep counselling and explaining as to why I would react in a certain way to whatever. And um, Dr. Lee McCain cured me. I got rid of that feeling because I was panicking. How was I going to look after my son? When you were a child looking after your brother, looking after your mother, your grandmother, presumably, and then well, yeah, somewhat, I'm sure yeah. you'd run errands for her yeah, if she was blind. But um, you wouldn't have had time to no, consider was, how you were feeling no, about anything. No, sure. I still have a scar at the back of my knee, right knee, that I had a big boil at. Um, and throughout my childhood and adolescent years and even into my 20s, um, if I was feeling low or down in the dumps, this knee would be in terrible pain. And again, going to craniosacrology, she explained to me that your grandparents, I think is that your pains is in your ankles, your own parents is in your knees and your own children's in your hips. So you were feeling the pain of your... In my knees. Yeah. 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 And do you think having your own child, that realisation that, that what what you were, what you'd started mm-hmm. out as, was, mm-hmm. I'm sure when your son hit the age of three and a half, four, yeah, well, you probably had a lot of triggers. and Big mistake. You, you know, it's probably laughable to some people, but... He's now 21. He killed me for saying it, like, but he really cannot butter a piece of bread. Right. right. So I had this wee newborn baby and I vowed, you are not doing anything for yourself. I am going to care for you like a newborn chick for as long as I can. Mm. And um, he, he couldn't fend for himself at all. Of a 12-year-old, he could run the house um, because... I didn't make the same mistake again. I, I, my older boy, I, I didn't want him to have to do anything. I didn't want him to have the childhood of having to do all that I had to do. And, oh, I'm paying the price for it now. Um, so many layers of everything going on with your story of what happened to you between the absolute utter trauma of what you saw and the memories and then... You know, it was a it was a traumatic childhood that you'd become an adult. You didn't have a childhood after no. it. No, I did my GCSEs, nineteen eighty eight, and I because my mother was coming out of 
winging herself off the um, tranquilizers. I um, I didn't even tell her I was sitting GCSEs. Whereas when my brother was doing it, my mother was doing the venus and doing everything. I came out with eight GCSEs. You know, whenever the results today, the results came. I, um, my mother was like, when did you do them? And then the panic said, I know I wanted to do a level, so I wanted to do this, I wouldn't do that. And she was absolutely death against it because I know now she wanted to keep me at home. She didn't want, she basically didn't want me leaving the house. Whereas my brother, she was very eager doing novenas and oh, making sure that he got all the top grades. You're two totally different childhoods because mm-hmm. it seems that people, maybe the adults around you after what happened, felt that you couldn't have remembered anything and yet mm. you have very, very vivid, yeah, very, frightening memories. Yeah. Whereas your brother probably doesn't remember anything. Nothing. And he didn't go on then to sort of become the adult of the house either. No. Do you get on? Oh, yeah, we do, yeah. We, we only live a few houses away from each other. Mm. Yeah, very much so. And is he aware of that now as well as... Oh, yeah. And yeah. I was sort of taken back it left me a bit raw for a few days him saying to me I think it was about nine when you I can remember you learned you said I'm going to try potatoes I'm going to buy potatoes today and I tried my hand at spuds do you remember that doing that yeah 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 but I didn't think he remembered any of those things yeah yeah because we never talked about it we never talked about it growing up and it literally was just after Christmas there and um, whatever it was I would we would take turns at, you know, cooking. I'd go to the, my family and I, we'd go to theirs so they'd come to us. And then that's when he said to me and it just really cut me. And I said to him, I can't believe, I didn't know you remembered those things. And he said, yeah, I do. Isn't it amazing the resilience of children? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, how when something's put in front of them, they'll do it and they'll... Mm-hmm. Needs must. Yeah, needs must. The mentioned before about this Lenan gang and what it was and when did you become aware of you know outside your own world what had happened what was going on politically you know outside it we won't call it politics because essentially it was mass murder yeah but when did you start becoming aware and when did the name Garfield Beatty start coming into your, your your world. Okay. So my mother was still um, very much, you know, um, politically aware regardless of the tranquilizers. Um, but a way for her um, to keep sort of noise in the house, I, I think maybe it, it was a, a, a comforting thing. She had the radio on all the time. So I can remember then, again, my mother was in bed. Um, I can remember it was a rather bright day, mid-morning. Um, I don't know what time of the year it was, to be honest with you, though it was a, it was a, a kind of bright, bright day. I can remember this lady calling, and there was somebody out in the car, um, her calling and um, looking to speak to mummy. So... My mother only came to the window up the stairs and this one shaded up to mummy. Um, there, um, man's in court today. Um, 
will be charged with shooting your husband. I um, you you'll hear it on the one o'clock news. No name, no nothing. You'll just you'll hear it on the one o'clock news. So my mother must have got up anyhow. So the one o'clock news, um, and she had the radio just like up right up right up till her, so she wouldn't miss a thing. And it was then that I'd heard the name Garfield Beatty for the first time because it was given out on the one o'clock news that this man had been charged with mur- murdering Dennis Mullen. What age were you? Um, I think it was about almost seven then. Right. No, no, I'd have been six. And did you understand that? Yeah, you see, because I understood that my father had been shot. I understood, and I understood that he'd be shot by the UVF. And I knew what the How UVF... How did you understand that? No, but prior to that there, I knew what the UVF and IRA was. Because you were going around with your father? Yeah. Mm. So young. Yeah, no, I understood what each of those stood for. Mm. Um, and had you heard, with the radio being on constantly in the background, obviously... I was aware, I was aware of other atrocities as yeah. well. Yeah. Mm. Um, no, I, I, I knew of other atrocities. Mm. And... Um, um, my grandmother, you know, coming in um, and mommy and her talking about different things that had happened the night before or such and such was killed or, um, well, I mightn't just remember the names now. I can remember those, hearing those conversations. So would you think you would have been aware that there was a war going on or that, what was your understanding of it? Um, or was it, you're so young, was it, that there was good people and bad? No, I basically knew that, um, I knew the UVF were pro- well, like, Protestants and well, like, I since know that not everybody is, you know, um, supports the UVF, but, and I remember um, thinking, well, if we didn't have the IRA, we wouldn't be able to sleep in our beds at night. Right. And like, that was one of the things that I had said to the other four-year-olds that day. I think even the P1 teacher checked me for saying that um, because she had come on seeing me giving this talk. Um, but no, honestly, I knew what the, I knew what the crack was. Mm. And my mother was still sitting at the school for the SDLP whenever there was any elections or whatever. So even though she wasn't well herself, um, but she, she was very much, and she still was doing like forms for people to get houses or trying to get people jobs, not to the same extent as she had been whenever Daddy was alive, but she was still doing a bit. Mm. So people were coming to the house and there was always still a lot talking on, political talk. I even recall, you know, different, you know, just thinking, well, their bodies, their bad ones are just... Don't look at them, people, if you're walking by or anything, you know, because maybe you'd have heard, oh, them is in the UVF or them is, so I wouldn't have looked at those people. Was there any sense of justice that day in the house when... No, none at all. No. I think it made my mother go into an even worse psychotic attack. Mm. Brought it all back? Yeah. Um. So I would have meant her in bed for another look of days. 
But then I remember then, you know, my brother or my uncle, mum's brother, um, I would always, she, she would never say she was going to court, but she knew she was going to court. Um, even though the word court was never mentioned, I just knew that's where she was going. Um, because we would have had to get minded by, and not by marriage. And mum and her brother went away off um, and were away most of the day. And do you think that you were, as a family, and and your mother and, you know, being medicated rather than mm-hmm. counselled, etc., you weren't kind of ready for justice? Do you think you were too traumatised for justice? I have no, no concept of justice, but listen, uh, turned 50 there a couple of months ago, there's still no justice. Mm. But you have a concept of it now? I have a real better, clearer understanding of it. And maybe that's a journey that people who are yeah. victims of such traumatic crimes have to mm-hmm. take. Yeah. Like, after he was jailed, and I think he was convicted of three murders in total, served 16, 17 years in prison. Yeah. During that time, you're becoming a teenager, you're going on to your early adulthood. Mm. What's going on then? Have you... I mean, this is obviously always with you and always looming, but are you aware that he's in jail? Or are you aware? I'm very much aware he's in jail. In fact, it, it would have been a real goal of mine. I always would have loved to have how I would, you know, there was no Google or anything in those days. I always had this sense, I'd love to go to see him. I'd really love to see him. Not to ask him why he did it or what, you know, why just wanted to know what he looked like. I wanted to know what made him tick. I, I, I just I just wanted to have a vision of him. Did you want to tell him what he'd taken away? No, I don't know what I don't know what I was looking. I, I really don't. I was too naive really to know what I wanted from him. Mm. But I I wanted something. Which would be a restorative yeah. justice thing that yeah. It's starting to become more maybe. Well it used. wasn't really until after the Good Friday Agreement and then um the HET and the HET was brilliant. It, it it opened up so many doors. I, you know, got the report, my mother got the report then. I read the report and um through the Pat Finnegan Centre, you know, they asked, you know, if you wanna make up right, so I met these two guys from the HET anyhow. They were fantastic. In fact, one of the gays, I really, and I've put in a call to the Stark and Quarry or John Boucher's team are going to try and see if they can find him. Mm. So one of the gays, when the meeting was over anyhow, um, he said to me, you know, they were, I worked through the Matty, and he said, um, I happened to tell this old colleague that I was coming over to Northern Ireland to meet one of the victim's daughters. And... He said, I, I told him who I was coming to meet. And he said, there was a look on his face and I'll never forget this look. And he said, I said to him, what, what's wrong? What, what you have very startled look on you. And he said, that murder that night, he said, is the reason I left the RUC. He says that we girls sat there for over two hours and we weren't allowed to take her out of the house. And he said, that night, he says, I left. I gave him a notice the next day and joined them police in England and he said I couldn't believe that and I said I, I really want I, I have this burning desire I really want to meet this man just to reach out to hand him because obviously he was as traumatised as I was 
And clearly there were. Yeah. Amidst all that. Yeah. Awfulness. Because that's what I was thinking. How can so many human beings be so cold cold and and bad with a small child in bed and a baby and Mm. a mother yeah. Injured a father lying dead. How can so many human beings not show yeah. humanity? So now yeah, I just really would just like to so um John Bite just came out trying gonna track him down. Right. It's just to reach out a hand to friendship. Yeah, yeah. And somebody that was there yeah. that saw you as a mm-hmm. child. Yeah. At that moment. It'll be hard. Yeah, but I just really would like to do that. Mm-hmm. So the awareness comes over the years of the existence of the Glenan gang, mm. who they are, what they were doing. And um, obviously there have been inquiries and then they've been mm. put back in their box essentially up here. And there's hope again, maybe that, um, apart from Boris and his amnesty, but, you know, um, it's an ongoing mm. It's an ongoing story, really, isn't it? All of this justice situation. But I suppose go back to Beatty was released from prison. Yeah, never ni- heard. 90s. Yeah. Knew nothing about him. I suppose then I was getting on with my own life. Um, work, marriage, children. I thought nothing more ever about him. Um, um, and then um, three years ago, there in September, um, and around, or maybe the beginning of October, and around that time, um, I was walking down the Moy with a local lady, and we'd actually just finished doing a photo shoot for a, a festival in the Moy, and um, this white van pulled up on the opposite side of the road and shouted over to me, "You, Denise Mullen." I said, "Um," and he says, "I'm not going to have a word with you." So. I just thought it was council business. So I excused myself from the lady, went over. Gosh, I have the hand scrubbed off myself, the feeling of it even telling you now. I put out my hand, shook hands, and well pleased to meet you. And um, I said, what's your name? And he said, I'm Jared Beatty. Yeah, it still meant nothing to me. And I said, where are you from? And he said, Annette Moore. So... Annamore, Dungan, Annamore, Coal Island would be my councillor. And then, so I said, is that Annamore, Coal Island or Annamore, Portadown? And he goes, Annamore, Portadown. And literally, this heat sensation from top of my head to my toes came over me and I said, you're not Jared Beatty, you're Garfield Beatty. And he just gives the most horrible laugh. <laughs> you know my eye. It was like something from a horror movie, the way he said it. And I didn't know whether to reach in and put my hand around his neck or what. But anyhow, um, he said, I I really need to talk to you. And um, uh, he said, look, I, I have information I want to give you. I, I know I can help you. I can do this. I can do that. Um, could we meet up, please? Could we meet up? And he, he said, I'll give you my number. So I took his number anyhow and he said, no, you promise, can we meet up? Can we meet up this week? I really want to talk to you. And I said to him, well, I would have to take somebody with me. And um, he said, well, I'd be very cautious who you take with you. And I said, um, well, I'll take you, Jean Reavy. He's a friend of mine. And he goes, well, that's all right. He says, I know about their murders too. Um, you can take him with you. 
So I got into the care of my own car anyhow. I wasn't fit to drive for about 15 or 20 minutes. My legs were shaking that much. My arms were shaking that much. I felt as if my head was going to explode. So the lady that I'd been talking to, they own a pub in the way actually. So I rang her and I said, she just knew, but she said, Denise, come up to the house, what's wrong? So I went to her door and I was pure shaking and I could hardly get the words out. And she says, you may take a brandy. I says, can't take a brandy, I don't drink. But she gave me a brandy anyhow and I sunk a brandy. And raw. And um, I says, that man, she goes, why, what, what did he do to you? And I goes, that's the man that shot daddy. But she had to take a seat herself then. I think she took a swig of brandy too. And do you want another one? Definitely not. Just to give me a cup of tea. And um, I told her what he said. She couldn't believe. She goes, I'll drive you up home. I says, no, no, it's all right. I'll, I'll, I'll manage. I'll, I'll get home. And I didn't go home. I just drove on, ended on Yan, spun about a while, cleared my head. And it wasn't until maybe three weeks afterwards my mother was living with me at the time. Um, I could even tell her what had happened because she was saying to me for days, are you not at yourself or is there something wrong or you just, you're not talking or what? No, I'm all right, mummy. Have you something on your mind? Is there, are you worried about anything? No, I don't know what it is. Uh, I think of something coming over me. I was making all the excuses of the day. Um, but I'd, contacted Eugene anyhow and I told him and Eugene right we'll go the night we'll go the night says Eugene couldn't I couldn't face it I need to get my head around this that I've met him before we can do anything every day that was I think on Monday chased to Eugene ring again couldn't that Eugene I can't I'm not ready I have to build myself to psych myself up to go to see him so about five o'clock on the Friday Eugene rings, he goes, I'm in the mine, we're going. I goes, can't go, can't. I, ha- I have to prepare myself for this. And he goes, there's no preparing at it. He goes, ring him. Come down night to the Ryandale. Meet him in the fire. So the two of us sat there. Do you want a cup of tea? Definitely not. Couldn't face anything. So I rang him. I went up, cousins, I'm on a dress there. And I sister, could any chance for a private room? And Eugene says, whatever it is, tell her I'll pay for it. And I goes, there'd be no paying for anything for that bastard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse the bad language. So, so she says, no, it's okay, I'll give you a ring. So I rang him and, I said, and he said, that's okay, I'll be there in 10 minutes. Bless us and save us. I think I blessed myself to know many times. How am I going to cope here? The next thing he rang, he rang back and he goes, no, I couldn't go there. It wouldn't be safe for me to go there. He says, you should come here. I says, oh, no, definitely couldn't. And Eugene took the phone to me and he goes, where do you live, by?" So we got directions anyhow. I think I had to ring him again, going out the road to get the right, the right directions. So Eugene was driving. I don't think we talked about anything going out. We went into the house anyhow. I'm going to cope here. 
So I sat in an armchair opposite him and Eugene was sitting in a chair in the middle and Eugene, he offered us tea or whatever, but sure, he wasn't taking his second tea. And um, Eugene just launched into him, what do you know, he was taking a, what do you know, we, what do you know? And your man just looked at him with a evil look. I'm not speaking to you. So just something clicked in me immediately. I'm going to have to act stupid here. Not hard to do, you know, but... So... It's a good ploy a lot of the time. Yeah. And I says, because I just knew to myself, Eugene's took him too heavy here. This isn't going to work. So he said to me, um, what is it you want to know anyhow? Like after him inviting us, what is it you want to know? So, oh God, what is it called me? I had to be so meek and mellow. And I says to him, actually, Garfield, just tell us, just start from the start, even to call him that. And he says, from the very start, I says, I just start from the start. Like I says, you know, whatever, just tell us, tell me, you know, how do you get involved and all that there. And I was trying to be a gentle voice and really, you know, anyhow. So he told me that from, um, he was a teenager, he was fascinated by guns and that. And he would walk over to Ardre's house and there was um, Billy Corrigan was there. He owned a wee shop in around where he lived there. And he said Billy and these other men were training, UVF training. And he used to say to him now and again, you know, hey, do you want to take a shot? And he said when I was about 14, he said I had perfected a shot. And um, he said, I was hanging out with them men uh, all the time, all them young men and young fellas all the time. And I couldn't wait to get away over till practice at the shooting. So um, he said, 1973, your parents was on a hit list. And he says there was 10 names on that list. And he said, your parents were um, never above three. So he said from 73 to 75, they went from three to two to one to three. They kept moving, but never went uh, or below the three or above the three, whatever. And he said then, just as I had uh, suspected, he said when George McCall was killed, he said, um, your parents went to number one. And he said, um, two weeks before the job was done, um, um, Billy Corgan's daughter come running down the, up the road to me. The same girl that actually went on to marry Billy Wright. And she um, ran down the road, ran up the road to me, Daddy's looking to see you. And... He says, so I went down to the shop, into the back of the shop. That's where the business was always always conducted. And um, he said, we're doing the Mullins. And um, he said, I collected a gun. Um, They were driven by John Power um, from out there at Road as well. And they... It was a serious drought in 75, apparently very hot summer. And um, 
I have retraced the steps so many times and the first time I retraced their steps, I'd said to my mother, like, how did they come across there? Like, because it's like um, water. And she told me, no, there was such a drought. So parked up a country road, went through a hedge, down through where the water would have been, up, lay in the fields and shot my mother, shot my mother and killed my father. Um, he then, Garfield Beatty said to me that, do you realise that you have traumatised me my whole life? And I thought to myself, hey, I've traumatised you, little do you know what you've done to me? But I had to say, oh God, even to say to you now, I had to say, oh God, love you, what happened to you? <laughs> and he said, when we were doing our UVF training, they told us, never look round. And he said, I made a huge mistake, he said, when the job was done, he said, and it's so cold the way he said it, when the job was done, he said, we were running away and I turned round and he says, there you were standing there. And he said, you have haunted me my entire life. The words, you have haunted me your entire, my entire life, seeing you standing there. He said, I had to be sedated in jail. I was waking up screaming and everything. Um, over the head of you. Very difficult for me to take, but I had to sit there and extremely calm and as if it was a bl- just gone over my head. But anyhow, he um, told me then they came out, um, they passed the gun to who, it, who they passed the gun to, where it was buried. Um, he told me about the day the cops come to lift him. He took them, uh, what he went through in golf barracks, um, which believe me, was very little. Um, he um, told me that the orders came, it was like a, almost like a family tree. The orders came from an MI5 base to the Jackal. The Jackal's next in line was Billy Corrigan and Billy Corrigan then had a band of merry men under him and the one that probably he was closest to was Garfield Beatty, so Garfield Beatty was chosen to do the job. Um, Garfield Beatty ambied in Time magazine of bullets on my father and didn't fire any wides. When I read the coroner's report a couple of years ago, um, I really was traumatised for weeks afterwards. Um, It was, I suppose, because I memorize what is written and visualize what is how the way it was done um it, you know it, it said in the report about um you know my father was killed shot from um a shoulder right to his groin all on the left hand side and the the report states that when they turned my father's body over they heard a clang this is the words written. They heard a clang on the, the metal table and something rolled and it fell to the ground and it was a bullet. You know, saying it's so so the way it's written was mm. anyhow. Met Beatty anyhow. Um he told me that um I he, he told me that 
there was a man that, when he was about 18 years old, joined um, the MOD in England. The same guy um, was displaying signs of anti-nationalism while he was there. Um, he was um, chosen then to come back and join the UDR in Dungannon. And while he was in the UDR in Dungannon, his job was tasked to um, sign up anybody for the UVF that showed anything untoward, and this is Garfield Bailey's words, anything untoward towards nationalists. Um, but this same guy was actually really working for the hierarchy. And he told me that this guy, that I have met him, and he's quite sure I would have spoken to him. And I said, God forgive me, I said, look, I'm going to be honest with you. I know very few Protestants. And I says, it wasn't until I went to the tech at 16, 17 years of age that I would have been in the company of somebody from another religion. So I don't think I would have ever been talking to this man. And he said, I think you probably have met him somewhere along the way. And he, um, I said to him, please give me who he is. I says, and he says, I can't do it. He said, the boys in Portadown will come after me and shoot me. And he said, he's living in Scotland now anyhow. So I spent the last three years trying to wreck my brain and ask around the country who that this person could be. Gave you a carrot. Give me all the pieces of jigsaw, but not the final piece. Mm. Which is a cruelty. Yeah. A measure of him. Mm-hmm. And how he told you the story, what strikes me, he... Set it up. It was rehearsed, was it? Had oh, he, he's a, yeah. in his head. He had yeah. thought how he was going to tell you this, and the first thing he had to tell you was how good a shot he was. Yeah, it was all about him. How he had been traumatized. How I had traumatized him. Mm. How good a shot he was. Um, you know, to me, he's almost like a trained marksman. He, he, he missed. You know, um, I wonder what the level of involvement or position that Garfield had if he was next to. Billy Corg, and that left him third place down in the chain. Mm. I mean, this guy's not, um, you know, how many other people's murders was he involved in? You know, he might have been charged with three, but, I mean, he has mass murder blood on his hands. He's a mass murderer. Mm-hmm. Um, he himself was in the TA. Um, all the ones involved in my father's murder all had a... Um, one was an RUC man, a... Um, only murder he was charged with was the murder of Frederick McLaughlin. He is not charged with anything to do with my father. And the others are all MOD. Every single one of them has security force background. And Garfield Beatty, um, what was his purpose in having you face to face on his armchair, in he offering just, you a cup of tea? Oh, in he just wanted to story. tell me how he was a victim. He is playing the victim. Mm. Was he, do you think it was, it's a continued cruelty, it was part of whatever his sickness is that he had to tell you that? Yeah, I mean, it was only then, three years ago, that I had to start a counselling process. Um, Was it because of him? Yeah, that was my first time getting counselling. Oh, you've been through? Yeah, yeah. He did you a favour? Yeah, he did me a favour. But the counselling, I, I... talk and talk and talk to the counsellor but I'm always looking to know why I react in this way away and, and mm. Heather's great Pedro Malnut that I go to counselling with he's great because he understands that's 
what I'm after. You're on a sort of jury, journey of understanding about yourself. Yeah. Your reactions to situations. Yeah. And yeah. Now, Garfield Beatty was charged in relation to that meeting you had with him? No, not at all. No. No. Um, then I sat about the process, but only, well, a few months later, I thought, I'm not letting you away with the way that you've affected me and re-traumatised me and you're now playing the victim and blaming me for your mental health. How could this man blame me and tell me he's got post-traumatic stress? So anyhow, um, because of me, a four-year-old. So, and he said, you know, every time I see on the TV or see on the newspaper, he says, um, it's just bringing back terrible memories for me. And I thought, right, okay. So I thought, I'm not letting you away with this. Do you know, I might have played stupid then, but... So, basically, I've, for years and years and years, now, teenage years up, I've thought, right, I am not a violent person or into uh, anything like that. So I thought... Those five people that were involved in my father's murder, there's only one way that I can get you back, and that's hit you in your pocket. So I talked it over with my solicitor and couldn't really do anything prior to this. You know, I said, OK, I have to get these people in their pocket. So what, guess what? Garfield Beatty stopping me, music to my ears. So because he stopped me, I then could issue legal proceedings against him, take a civil case, and then I'm in the process, very lengthy down the line, of seizing his assets. And um, because of that and him receiving letters about losing his home and whatever else, um, he then went on to send me a death threat three a year ago, just a year and a few months ago, to myself and for my family members. And... Listen, for a week, sure, I didn't know who it was, or I got this letter, you put my head away. But anyhow, um, turned out it was Garfield Beatty. And um, just about, what, maybe six, maybe eight weeks ago now, he was charged with um, sending me that letter. He's back in jail now. But so what, a couple of months, it really makes no odds. Um, but um, I... Actually, had a terrible Christmas. I, after Christmas dinner, I just basically went to bed for the rest of the day because I have spent this last eight weeks or whatever it is traumatised by sitting opposite him in a courtroom mm. and listening to the utter tripe come out of his mouth, the tripe come out of his legal team's mouth. Um, you're more or less implying that he had suffered from PTSD, so he's not accountable for his actions. Well, you know, I sat there, but I couldn't say, couldn't answer back. I've been diagnosed with complex PTSD caused by from a maniac. And he's the victim, again, trying to play the victim. Do you have the letter? So this was received on the 20th of September 2020. Um, it has in a, in type, 
it has been brought to our attention you are taking High Court action against Mr. Jared Beatty. This is nothing more than an act of deliberate provocativeness initiated by a personal vendetta. The contingencies, sorry, this is the way he has written it, so the contingencies of this vendetta in the High Court will have ratifications and consequences. We will be un- unambiguous. There will be, there will most certainly be ratifications for the fragile Good Friday Agreement. There will be personal consequences for yourself and your immediate family. Therefore, you are being strongly advised to think again and consider the long-term consequences on your own personal health, East own Volunteer Force. The one question I wanted to ask you was, are you afraid of Garfield Beatty? No. Will you follow him to the gates of hell? I will. I'll take everything from him. And if I can go after the other four or five as well, I'll take after everything from them. Just like they took everything from us. Garfield Beatty and his band of Marie men are still walking the streets of Ireland. My father's dead. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.